We'll be in Second uh, Samuel tonight. We're going to pick it up where we left off. That's what we do. So if you would, you're going to be in chapter 3. And we're going to come back to verse 22. Verse 22. Part of this is that there, even if you read it in advance, even if you've gone through this before as a study, I have found that um, in whenever uh, the presentation of the word is uh, happening, it has a present tense application to us, for me as well. You know, things that we're aware of, things that we're going through, things that we're praying about. So it's it's all very good. I would like to, though, uh, preface this with, a title um, that I've been doing with what you would call these studies. And I think that that probably is the poet-songwriter in me. Christy says very often, those titles are as big as the message. <laughs> uh, and I think that some of them are. Tonight's title for moving expositionally through this chapter is starting off on the right foot the wrong way. Starting off on the right foot the wrong way. There is a right way to do something. There is a wrong way to proceed in the doing of it. This all unfolds in David's life. And I think that it is important as well that when we look at that, <clears throat> It's not a justification because of how awesome David was as a king, still nobly honored in his country, and certainly in the scriptures. And I don't believe that David would say that to us presently. He's allowed to reflect, I think, the normality of a man's life one that truly desires to live for God and, and perform exploits of faith for God, but who also in frailty fails God and fails himself. And I did put that in the correct order. We very often put way too much emphasis on us failing ourselves and others. But the correct and humble way is to say, well, we've failed God, but not in a manner that that puts us in what would be the wrong perspective of God, because he's gracious. But I think that having the attitude that says, and David always, you know, had the majority of his dialogues based on when the evidence was in, he would say, against the only and the only Lord have I sinned. Not saying that his offense did not affect someone else, but what he is saying in that is that as a result of not keeping a focus on God, then he moved himself into ultimately a failure before God. 
that had then an effect of consequence on people. And the other thing that we see in David's life is that rather young right now in his life, at least from my perspective right now, he's half my age. So that's young. When I was his age, I thought it was rather old. Now I look at it and think it's rather young. And of course, as the, as the years move on, as we advance in experiences, there are many things that we look back reflectively on and we say, wish I would have done that better. I wish I had given myself over to the Lord more wholeheartedly instead of half-heartedly. I wish I would have been different towards people that in a time when I thought I knew it all, I was highly critical of the life experience that they had come to know by traveling a lot longer with the Lord than I had. So these are the these are the things that we see right now. And in this chapter in particular, there's going to be sad hearts. Because what had been from the beginning of that chapter, a directive that David received from God, there were some errors that he made. And ultimately following that course with the right foot, but compromising in ways that were wrong and that have led to, unfortunately, the loss of life, the loss of a relationship, the complications that happen when people that don't belong in your life are in your life, and there was a time in which that decision could have been made. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. God does not expect that everybody in your life remains in your life if they're robbing you of life in him. And that can be a difficult decision. God wants you certainly to reflect his truth and to speak his word and to be one who loves those whom you are with, but by no means does he expect that we forge a relationship, and that may be in business, forge a relationship, and that may be in love, forge a relationship, that may be in friendship, a variety of kinds of relationships that come up in which God also is saying there's common sense to exercise here and there's spiritual discernment to call upon me for. Because in your relationships, the manner by which you have forged a unity, you're really not walking together as I want you to walk, David, or Richard, or whomever you may be. You're really not walking together with them as I want you to walk for me. And that comes back to that issue of responsibility. It can be lonely to walk alone with God. Think about how he feels, about how many invitations he's given out that a man or woman would walk with him, and he never gets a response. 
He's just always waiting. I think about that because I really do genuinely believe that that God enjoys that kind of desire for men and women. So as a prelude, we're going to get into some heart issues right now. Starting off on the right foot, the wrong way. I'm going to prelude this with some wisdom that comes from Proverbs. So hold your spot there. Turn with me to Proverbs 18. Let me plow through some of these verses that I believe are links to where we will be. Not necessarily any particular order, just things that, that came to my attention as I moved into this. Verse 16 of chapter 18, or Proverbs 18. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. So that sounds like David, doesn't it? It sounds precisely like David. And it did bring David before great men. His father was a great man. His grandfather was a great man. Samuel was a great man of God, a great prophet. Saul, according to his people, was a great man. Goliath was a great man. Evil, but he was great. He was big and great. Too big for his britches. David, at a time in which his fame grew, attracted many people to himself. And those men in their own eyes and by the standards of others weren't considered much. But the Bible says that they became great, great as warriors, because they were following one that exemplified a greatness in his humility. So this sounds like David, and maybe it sounds like you. Meaning that as David was raised up before God and with the plan of God for him to satisfy that, he saw much. He acquisitioned a lot in hard experiences. And by the way, it's important to realize that it is in the hard experiences that we go through in which that forging of greatness is solidified and accomplishments. We wouldn't choose it. I think most of us would say that. But what God chooses for us in taking, it, taking us through the hardship of experiences is precisely that he brings greater glory to himself. For there comes a point in which a man of greatness cannot boast in anyone but a great God who took him under his wing, who gave him the counsel of the holy, who distributed on his behalf and for the benefit of that person gifted men and women. You're a gifted man and a gifted woman, and God will bring you before kings and princes. We might call them employers. But it may be that they have a position that is 
exceedingly appreciated by you. And because of how God has gifted you, you are brought before them. But I will also say this on the other side. What if in the giftings that God has given to you, he is the one that presents you, not to others, but to himself? Could you live, can I live, with being presented to God as true royalty, as one whom he admires especially, and he says to you, you're great, and you stand before me. Isn't that great? So I do believe that David had that special connection with God to this age for certain. Other things yet to unfold. But let me continue, even as I believe that sounds so much like him, brings him before great men and makes men great that stand before him. In chapter 19, again carrying on with the fact that these principles are going to be seen, but I'd rather touch on them now. A false witness will not go unpunished. David had false witnesses in the camp. Men who would say things to him that had a bent on their disposition. And that was very difficult ultimately for David and decisions that he made and for other people that he loved. And so we need to realize that even in times of greatness before God, God being great in our eyes, undeniable in our lives, that there can be at times this, in fact, false witness that is seemingly allowed to speak and to point but God says here in this proverb that that person will not go unpunished. God also tells us that wrath is reserved for God alone. And therefore it becomes necessary to know the heart of God. And even maybe wonder why in a crisis we'll see in this event, David may have had challenges and coming to terms with it. That can happen sometimes at times trying to have the character of God when in fact God has asked us to take care of characters, people that really are a problem and would do better being separated from you as opposed to continuing to be linked up with you. So that is important. We're told in our culture today, be tolerant. But if we're not spiritual, then it's actually a vulnerability and it's a lie we're, we're actually being seduced by. We're to be patient, but we don't have to be tolerant. And patience has an altogether different expectation because it means that while there is patience that you are having worked into your life, there is character being worked on in your life. You're not just rolling your thumbs and humming a merry tune. You're being developed and trained 
and character and the circumstances that you're going through. But again, it's echoed in verse 9 of chapter 19. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who speaks lies shall perish. Why is this being repeated twice? Because God's emphatic. Don't take things into your own hands, but take those hands and put them in prayer. That position that very often we associate with prayer. And let God work patiently to develop character in you as he gives you a plan on what you're to do in that predicament. And when he gives you the plan, you want to honor it. And you want to honor it quickly. Some of you have been given a plan by God in a situation in which you've exercised the patience, but you've been more tolerant than you have in being obedient and it's costing you. And the Lord would say, take care of my business before you're worried about somebody else's business. Heed my advice before you take their advice. They lie to you. They are false witnesses to you. I am truth. I am life. I have the way for you. Obey the voice of my spirit. And so, in two other verses, as we track this, go to Proverbs 20. Listen to counsel and receive instructions that you may be wise in your latter days. David You've got Abiathar, you have got the opportunity and the prophetic voicing of many in the camp, but David, you have, you have a heart for me. And in this heart that David had for God, there is, I believe in this passage too, just a strong word. If we listen to counsel, then it requires there to be a response to counsel. And this is especially true if we're recipients of instruction. You know, we've all done that. We've popped open the box. The directions are there. But we are so enthusiastic about getting that thing put together that ultimately we didn't follow the directions and we're missing the one thing that could have made it work. The one thing that now we have to find that no longer is a part of that, which was to be put together. We can be very arrogant in terms of how much control we think we have of a situation. Lastly, verse 8 of Proverbs 20. And by the way, that was, uh, that was 19 that I quoted of 20. Listen to counsel and receive instructions that you may be wise in your latter days. If you want latter days, then make these early days count. I think I meant to say that too. But in the closing verse here, apropos to where we're at in the teaching, a king who sits on the throne of judgment scatters all evil with his eyes. And in essence, it means that what he sees that doesn't agree with what he knows about God gets taken care of. 
It may be the eye of conviction. It may be the eye of investigation. It may be that <clears throat> in which an observation lines up with something that does not agree spiritually with you. And so rather than turning a blind eye to it, your eyes are to be open concerning it. And then you ask God, Lord, what would you have me do in this situation in which my life potentially is at risk, my spiritual integrity may be compromised, what is it that you would have me do? And he may say, behave like a king. Scatter wickedness with your eyes. Investigate. And then dispatch. Don't be tolerant of it. Rather, exercise the character that has been forged in the patience of sitting before me, understanding me. And that doesn't mean that it can't be gracious. Because sometimes the Lord would say, in that disbursement, that execution of observation that scatters evil, God also would say, I want it punctuated with grace and mercy because I did not judge you in a manner similar, in a situation just like that. And because you know what it's like in that situation, then you dispense it with grace and mercy and understanding. Because I do believe that God is very benevolent. And I think that's important as well. We represent him best when we put more of him into it than ourselves as a part of it. 22, we're going to pick it up. It moves rather quickly because there's a conspiracy right now. It's already in play. And yes, all of this was a platform to bring us to this staging event right now. And it is. You've heard of staging? That's when something's set up in theater and it's, it's ready for lights, camera, action. And that's precisely where we're at right now. Popular term these days, bad actors. I like that. I don't know who developed that term in, in politics. It's got a little espionage feel to it. A little Sherlock Holmes. But it's actually very appropriate here. Bad actors. They know the words to use. And they play their part so well. But their characters are sinister. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid, brought much spoil with them, but Abner... Remember, he was the general on Saul's side, his army. He was overseeing the welfare of Ishbosheth. They've parted ways because Abner was insulted, and he's come to David now to make terms of peace and to turn over all of Israel, the greater majority, to David. That's his whole heart right now. Repenting, I think, can be an adequate word right now. He's changing what he was doing to now what he knows is right to do. And he's using the authority that he has been given. 
and it may be indeed that he would like to secure a place next to David, but at the same time he realizes that in doing so, he risks perhaps being nothing but a servant to David, because Joab is David's general. But I wonder, as this text unfolds, if actually Abner would have been the better general and Joab would have been the one that David needed to dispense with his eyes, his wickedness from his presence. It is interesting, isn't it, how one can be in a moment of a man or woman's life seemingly an enemy, but then a change happens in them towards you, an event that brings them actually closer to where you're at than where they once were, and they become what? Allies. We need allies. We don't need more enemies. And God knows how to turn those who at one time would turn against you towards you. It's a good principle that we see here. And so this raid brought much spoil with them. And Abner was not with David in Hebron, but he had sent him away. And he had gone in place or in peace, excuse me. This is concerning the meeting that they had. And David has now sent Joab, excuse me, Abner away. And Joab now comes on the scene. When Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, he came to the king and he sent him away. And he has gone, notice this, in peace. David was able to broker peace with that one time an enemy who pursued him with Saul, who was after his life. Uh, that's actually very generous. And that tells you David's heart. He was easily able to find generosity within himself in the form of mercy and grace. He is, in the ways that are proven honorable, a type of Jesus. In the ways that he fails, not like Jesus at all. Much like you and I, we have greater opportunities to be more like Jesus than less than Jesus. It's always a choice. But in this case right now, you need to remember that Joab has a vendetta because his brother was killed by Abner in what has to be identified as a combat situation. The reason that that's important is because in combat, the loss of life is inevitable. And it happens to be one of the things that enemies of one another realize that in combat, life will be lost and that is your job, is to win on behalf of your army, your king's army. So these two actually were warring factions. They were both generals in the armies that they represented. Joab was David's general. But David was Joab's king. He had the final word on everything. And not only that, but David was strong enough to prove himself against anyone. Now, this is somewhat remarkable, too, because these men would be 
in my calculations, older than David. We know that for certain that, that Abner was. He was definitely linked as a cousin with Saul. But he's probably closer, as we said before, with Jonathan. Joab is a bit, it's a bit dubious. My thoughts are, though, is that if he's not older, then he certainly behaves as one who thinks he's smarter. And the only thing that would turn me from from actually fully addressing that is that there is, at the end of his life, a word that David gives to his son Solomon with regard to Joab. It's, it's very likely that Joab may be younger than him, enough to have lived at the beginning of Solomon's reign, when he was probably still very young. But right now we have this interesting set of characters that are both generals, both desiring position, but one actually has greater power than the other. And that would be, in this case, Abner, who has the power of turning over all of Israel on behalf of God as a gift to David. So I think we looked at that too, but certainly where we were at today. Your gifts will bring you before kings, great men. And the gift that Joe, that Abner had was persuasion and integrity. History. The people would listen to him and find agreeable his bargaining with David. David sends him away with peace, meaning there was no grudge that David held against Abner. But boy, if he only knew what his right-hand man was doing, I don't even think it would have been permitted whatsoever. But Joab proves to be one who's dishonest and who has only an interest in satisfying a vendetta to avenge the life of his brother, there's three of them. This would probably be the younger brother who in a combat situation was killed because he would not heed the counsel of a man who in combat did not want to harm him. He was wiser, I think stronger, not faster, but he used wisdom, combat wisdom, to basically stop the threat that was upon his life. And on that, Joab had no reasonable excuse to conspire against Abner. And this is where the, conspi the conspiracy comes in. David sends him away in peace. Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away? And he has already gone? planting a seed of suspicion in David's heart. Surely you realize that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know 
all that you are doing. Well, that wasn't true at all. We already know Abner's intent. And we already know that there was a brokering that happened when David asked, bring Michael, my first wife. Which again, even as we look at that, saying, ah, David started off on the right foot going the wrong way. Because he didn't need Michael. Right? So the story got complicated even before this moment. The reason that he didn't need Michael is because he hadn't had Michael for 10 years. What had started off seemingly as a political alliance, which is what kings did, giving their daughters, giving their sons, two other kings' daughters, it, it just wasn't a relationship meant to be. God allowed in the passage of time for it to be annulled given to another man who, at this point, has been revealed sorrowfully broken, wanting his wife back. Right foot, starting out, wrong way. So you can see how all of this just kind of accumulates. It moves now from the personal to the vocational, meaning that David has right now a hothead in the innermost area of confidence as a military man, as a general. This would be kind of like an executive position. And he has one now who's lying to him concerning trying to trick David into believing that Saul's in, or that Abner's intentions were other than what we know them to be. But at any rate, he continues, When Joab had gone from David's presence... He sent messengers after Abner who brought him back from the well of Syrah. But David did not know it. It's because this was under the cloak of darkness. This was a betrayal that was not to be seen and known. But notice how responsive Abner was. Why? Because when he left David, he had terms of peace. Why would he question then that there would be anything other than perhaps other terms. Or perhaps a need that David was wanting to have him satisfy when he returns to Israel. So he goes, and when Abner had returned to Hebron, this is David's territory, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately. But it says here in this verse 27, and there stabbed him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So where we talked about the two being combatants, military generals opposing each other, this was not in combat. This was a civil violation of a man's right to live. God made it very clear that no one was to be executed except by two witnesses that could validate the crime. And normally the biggest crime was offending God. If it was any other offense, then it had different kinds of punishments. Very often it had corporal punishment to it. But in severity, it would have capital punishment. This did not warrant capital punishment. This was a violation of God's law. This was murder.
Afterwards, verse 28. When David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. This expression right now says that he is in mourning for what has happened, the atrocity that has been committed. He's also wanting to voice this very loud and clear that he can stop the potential of a civil war when Israel finds out that their second-in-command, Abner, had been killed, and not on the battlefield, but a domestic civil attack on his life, when they probably would have known, indeed, that he had dispatched himself to leave and to broker peace for David, whom no doubt the people's hearts would have been tuned in for. The people did not think wretchedly of David, but they did think perhaps too honorably of Saul. And that shows you that people will act honorably to leadership who behave wretchedly, and it is the predicament of politics even to this day. Because sometimes it is most notable to say sometimes officials ought not have any respect given to them for what they do and how they behave. But it does show you what people are willing to do. If change is possible, if civil war can be avoided, if dysfunction can turn into functionality, people will, for the purpose of having peace, do those things. Do you realize that even today, for the purpose of having peace, America has willingly obliged a type of mitigation that has never been done before, at least in my lifetime, in which everyone has been sent away to their homes. Why are we doing that? We're doing it because we're showing respect in a season in which even at risk are our very lives. We have to talk to God. We no doubt have come very close to God. Some people have lost everything because of this decision. And they will need to draw close to God. If not, then they will be conspiring, just like Joab, to take people out to do wrong, venting because of the presumption or the reality of loss. And that's why these times have a precariousness to them. Because we just don't, we've never been here before. Not really. This is what you would call a self-inflicted recession. Moving towards a depression. How can we get out of it? Only God can lift us out of it. But it ultimately does rest as well on the resolve of people. The resolve of people right now is to assess in leadership, how is this coming about? Well, there are two answers that I can give you. It's who you pick as king. Is it Saul? Because he's heads and shoulders above everybody else. He's got smooth language. Ooh, ah. Is it somebody that is actually a David? But you can't believe it. You can't believe it. It's unbelievable that he'd be David. 
But one thing that we do have in the type of government that we are privileged to be under is the power of the vote, if they're counted fairly. Because there are Joabs that needed to be voted out of office, that they might not be in a position of power to influence kingly decisions. Do you know that men in power operate very frequently against the king of kings, who is the supreme sovereign of the entire universe? And that's why when we were teaching in chapter 13 of Romans, we were really anchored there. That I have a God who is my maker. He knows my name. He knows your name. He knows conspiracies when they're happening because from the time in which redemptive measures were put in place by God to save mankind, it has been a conspiracy of Satan to thwart ultimately that goal, and that's to bring man to himself before the battle starts, before bloodshed is invoked, before eternity leads us in only two places, heaven, which is secured by faith in God through Jesus Christ, or hell, by rejecting the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. So the dynamics here plays out because when we see Job right now in this act, it is not in the favor of David at all. And David is making it very clear. This was not my heart. This was not my will. This was not my doing. This bloodshed is on Joab. So as it continues, David right now is exempting himself from guilt. He is one right now who is saying, basically in this, let it rest on the head of Joab and all of his father's house, verse 29. And let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, that's the other brother, his brother killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asael at Gibeon. In notice the battle. It was what would be called an acceptable loss of life as a consequence of being warriors. He didn't have to lose his life had he listened to Abner, but he didn't. And it is interesting because when we look at what is being said here in verse 29, uh, David is actually uttering right now prophetically what will happen to Joab's lineage. The king basically has prophesied a sentence against Joab. So it's not that he's doing nothing. It's that right now what we're seeing is a spiritual consequence that is being invoked by David concerning Joab. And when your whole family was threatened by literally being accursed by God and there's nothing you can do about it, that's severe. That is severe. And that would, it would seem to me, make one who had heard it repent quickly. David, 
You are right. You spoke truth. I am wrong. I conspired against this man. Do what you will with me for what it is I've done to an innocent man. I was enraged. My brother was killed. I'm tired. I've been traveling for 10 years with you. And I just never liked Abner. But David, I found you, even as you were merciful with Saul on multiple occasions. I'm confessing to you what I did was wrong. It is on me. And I believe that every word you spoke, in fact, will come to pass. Unless I appeal to you to appeal to God that I might have mercy and grace. Take away my sword. Take away my lance. Take away my shield. Take away my position. Let me serve you then in the lowest courts. But David, I, I beg you to forgive me and that I might, as I've seen you in times past, forgive and spare others. Forgive me. Spare me. And it's a picture because the Lord has said very clearly there is a day of judgment. And in that day of judgment, if you have not come to terms with the sin, which is expressed in a variety of ways, which is against the Lord himself, you will be accursed. It's a picture. What's your way out of it? to come to terms with it and to say, I've heard of a God who's merciful. I don't deserve it. In fact, I wouldn't give mercy to myself if I were God. But that isn't God. And this is David, and yet it's not David. Joab would have had opportunity to have avoided what ultimately now awaits him. And we'll see that as we progress through the book of second Samuel. But if we can turn it around for present tense purposes, if you're a Joab and all you've ever done is looked out for number one, but you've never given yourself over to the true and living God and in which your numbering is actually quite wrong. He's number one. You at best are number three because there always should be somebody before you. If you want not to wrestle with the issues of pride and contempt and condemnation. And so it's a great present tense analogy to start off right, but not the wrong way. If you start off right, then carry on in the correct way. If you need correction, then correct yourself. Oblige those who from the Lord are speaking prophetic language that may stir in you a panic. What do I do? And the Lord would say, look to me. Look to me. If we can presume that David in his best functioned as God in his most consistent and faithful acts of love, then how much more can you trust God himself to come into your situation in which you are carnal, a relationship in which you had one time pledged yourself as a young warrior of God, but turned in the battlefield of life to then be a conspirator and someone who operates in rejection of God's ways, comes up with plans that ultimately are transgressions against your neighbor, 
then this is a message for you. And it's certainly a message for me as well. David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin. We're moved pretty quickly into this. Burial, by the way, was very important back then. It was one of the immediate ways of rendering honor to one who had passed away. And so when you look at this, it's not being careless. It means that David is taking quick measures right now to give honor to the unnecessary death of this warrior. He is esteeming him, literally, in a funeral procession. And this would have been huge because many who were with him knew Abner and saw on occasion even the temperament of Abner perhaps against David because he was a general following Saul's orders. There's no doubt when arrows and rocks were flying that Abner was the one that drew up battle plans for Saul and had to go after David's men. David's men were protected. So this is huge. David puts his full power his presumed full power, his yet-to-be-inauguration or coronation on full display to one who was an enemy of Judah, but who now David is esteeming as a hero of both Judah and Israel. And that's why one of the, I suppose, sweetest marks that we can make on a person's life is to remember the very best concerning their life and to take opportunity that in the loss of that life, we point to the sure hope that we either know of or believe was transacted before they died. Funerals can be very powerful touchstones of a man and woman and a child coming to terms with the inevitable, life is short, there's an end. And will there be a beginning in a place that God has promised me or that I've heard about others speaking as promised to them? Will I be a part of that? I had a woman give me a call today that I do not know from Grant's Pass asking if on behalf of whom she has as a special friend in this community who seems to be in frailty of life, certain organs giving out, and if I would be willing to go and introduce myself and pray with them and give them comfort and see if there would be a heart that was ready to receive the Lord before ultimately death closes his eyes. I said I would be glad to do that and to be praying about that. And so there was this exchange with text. And it's kind of like, well, why me, Lord? And somehow she found out through another pastor, a friend of mine that passes a church in Grants Pass, that I was here. She looked us up on the web and was able to just say, that you're the one. I, the Lord has touched my heart to leave and entrust this man, this soul of this man, to you, that in the closing of his life, could God redeem him 
and heal him? Absolutely. Or could he accept the terms of what I would come to present to him, saying you don't have to be in doubt as to where you go, when in fact that is your desire to no longer live because of the hardship of your life and because the disease is hurting you in living out the fullness of joy? But it's very interesting right now because this procession means everything to uniting both people groups. And that's what death very often can do. Bring people groups that would know more sit together at a barbecue, let alone be able to get along in politics and what had been civil war for over 10 years. And so they buried Abner in Hebron and the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, your feet put into fetters, as a man fails before or falls before the wicked men, so you fell. So he's in this penning of this song and singing it, he is showing us that he is sincerely regretting the incident. All the people wept over him again. And when, the, and when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else Till the sun goes down. David, in the process of mourning, is abstaining from eating, and that's called fasting. And it was a way, really, to say to God, I'm so sorry in what happened. On my watch, this is, this is terrible. And so leadership does require taking responsibility for things that happen in the incidences of people that get it wrong with each other and do things that are wrong towards each other. And it's important that in leadership we broker for peace and we can show ourselves, if you would, quite opposite of Joab was. You know, look what you've done to me, but rather look what we're doing to each other. It's time that we stop doing this to one another. And so whenever you have the opportunity to be the stop, of the activity that's tearing people apart, and especially when I believe it's incumbent for you to. And very often, the expectation is on the leader, but I will also say that the expectation is on the follower, the one who has been a beneficiary of those older in the faith. And very often in the generations that we're seeing being raised up, there has been an unfortunate turning against parenting it was not so in my generation, not like it is today. There's always been friction. There has been rebellion. But the disrespect has been something that has been infiltrating society for quite some time right now. And so I would say, that because the Bible says, honor your mother and father that it might go well for you in the land that he will bring you into, I would say because that's the first 
passage concerning children with a promise, that's the one we anchor in, that we see a generation who may not say my parents deserve it or from what I feel I can't, but if this is what God's word says and he promises me that in so doing I will be brought into a special place, I'm going to give that a shot. Nothing else has worked. That may be, in fact, one of the ways that the Lord tugs on the heart. The people just wept over him again. And David chose to remain in a position of fasting till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. That's okay. If what a king does in righteousness pleases the people, in righteousness. It's not okay if what the king does in wickedness pleases the people in wickedness. There's a difference. A righteous king dispenses evil with his eyes, just scatters it, changes the paradigm, changes the set that's been staged for the characters that are players against God. And so this is Again, an important word right now because he's unifying them in the sincerity of grief and in taking responsibility. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. Then the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? We call that a eulogy. David may have been able to say, Man, he was such a thorn in my side. He challenged the very tactics that I would use to evade Saul. He was so good. It's amazing I got out with my life. And he humiliated me on several occasions before my men. And he was so good at what he did, I thought I was going to die in exhaustion from being on the run from him. But in the eulogy, he says nothing about the things that may have been his challenge. The things that God would have said, in patience, I'm going to develop your perseverance. And in your perseverance, your character is going to be incredible, David. I will take you from being a young man to a mature man who can come into the spot of authority, be empowered with my spirit and be a blessing to your people. I am weak today, though anointed king and these men, the sons of Zariah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. David again, citing the fact that he feels the weight of this. He's weak. He's tired. But because of his sincerity and this display of honor that he's giving to Abner's untimely death, he says, God's going to take care of this situation. I know that he will. So how does the principle then work out 
in saying that God will take care of this situation if, in fact, a king dispenses evil with his eyes. So there you go. It doesn't say with his sword, guns, fists. It says with his eyes. What are the eyes? The eyes of righteousness, the eyes of grace, the eyes of mercy. You know, those will dispense wickedness because wickedness doesn't share the same dynamics with those attributes of God. They don't. Think of how many people in wickedness want to hang around Christians. They don't. Because we dispense wickedness with our eyes. Our focus is on the Lord. And it's not about what they're doing. It's not fun on their terms to be with us. Because it's incongruent. It just doesn't work. But David recognizes that what has been done will be vindicated by God. And it's interesting because, you know, there's going to be some cost in this. But what we will learn about David is that his trust for the Lord increases. And he will be challenged in this principle that we've looked at starting off on the right right foot in the wrong way. His errors have been in alliances that he's forged with the king's family that he was a part of, didn't let go, still utilizing it to confirm his placement, didn't need to, could have seen in the disposition of Joab things that may have alerted him, or had an opportunity to meet with the greater majority of his men. So you guys have any challenges right now with anybody here? Everybody cool with each other? I'm not saying they would use that terminology, but are we doing well together? And that's very often why men, women, we need to be praying. Everything going well here. And then to be able to have discourse, but with respect and honor concerning the way that we are to go.